0: Our scripture for this morning is from Psalm One. Um, it's on page eight forty-three in your pew Bibles. If I can find it, um, it says, "Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord." And on his law, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked will perish. Sometimes when we read the Bible, we hear things that would totally surprise us if we just weren't so used to reading the Bible. Uh, here's one instance in this passage. In verse 2, it says that the person who is blessed whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Now again, that sounds like the kind of thing that you'd expect to hear from the Bible, and you just move past it without a second thought. Of course, you would delight in the law of the Lord. But then think about it for a second. The law of the Lord that the author is talking about is the kind of stuff that's found in the books of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I don't know if you've ever had a Bible in a Year reading plan, but if you have, there's a good chance that you stopped reading at exactly that point. It's full of these really old laws from a society that existed thousands of years ago, and you probably had no idea how to interpret it. There's not a whole lot of action, it just seems kind of boring. But the author said, blessed is the one who takes delight in these passages. And not only that, but blessed is the one who meditates on them day and night. It's a fair question to ask. Has such a person ever existed? Seriously, meditating day and night on the laws for what to do when an ox goes astray and doors a sheep sounds like a pretty boring life. Why would anyone not only want to read the law, but actually delight in it? And I think part of the reason that we have such a hard time with understanding this is because we take it for granted. The incredible revolutionary lesson that the law has for us has already been infused into our culture so that we more or less understand it without thinking about it. But people in the ancient world, like the one who wrote this poem, didn't take it for granted at all. What we are used to, since we grew up in a society that has known about Christianity for about 2,000 years, is that there is a God who really cares about how we treat each other, The way you please God is by worshiping him, loving him, and loving one another. We believe in a God that is completely selfless and doesn't need anything from us. And so he isn't seeking to manipulate us to his own ends. But almost no ancient society actually believed in that kind of God. Instead, for the most part, they thought that the gods were basically big humans. We needed stuff, so they needed stuff. We could be morally wrong, so they could be morally wrong. We can change our minds on a whim, so they could change their minds on a whim. The gods in the ancient world weren't all that interested in how we treat each other, except that we, if we treat each other too poorly, then it can cause chaos and a bunch of noise so that they can't sleep, and they'd be kind of annoying. That's actually true, yeah. Um, what that means is that they practically no gods in the ancient world had any interest in creating a law like the Torah for their people. And there was no book that was written down that claimed to come from God, that told everybody how to treat each other so that the God could be happy, except for the Torah. But that makes God's law so revolutionary, because it tells us that God is completely different from us. He cares deeply about how we treat each other, even if it doesn't really affect him. God didn't create the world because he was lazy or because he wanted to win a war, like the other gods in ancient society. But he created the world as an overflow of his perfect love a love that can only be perfect because God doesn't need us in the way that a father doesn't strictly need his child. And the world was meant to abound in fruitfulness to reflect that love back to its creator. And so everyone would experience the blessing of God's created goodness. In fact, the Torah promises in Deuteronomy that if the people of Israel live by the law of God and that they will be blessed and that God would be happy with them, um, other gods made no such promises. They could change their minds in a moment, so they couldn't make promises like that, or at least you couldn't believe them. And the other gods didn't really care about morality anyway. What that meant is that nobody ever really knew how to please the gods, which is a real problem because the gods were thought to have a lot of control over your life. If the gods didn't like you, you could have diseases and misfortune and become poor and die. So in other words, when you worshiped other gods, you realized that these gods had complete control over you, but you also had no idea how to please them. That's why one man from Babylon in 1300 BC wrote this. I wish I knew what things were pleasing to a god. What seems good to oneself could be an offense to a god. What in one's own heart seems abominable could be good to a god. In other words, you need the gods to be on your side. But nobody knew how to do that. And even if they did know one day, the gods could change their mind and hate what they, they're doing the next day. On the other hand, God said in Micah 6.8, He has shown you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? And that's how you please God. Not by giving him rivers of gifts and offerings, not by sacrifice after sacrifice, but simply by living justly and loving one another and putting other people's needs before your own. So this is why someone would actually delight in the law of the Lord. And yes, that includes books like Leviticus Numbers and Deuteronomy, because it tells you exactly what God is like. God is putting all his cards on the table and saying, here is all that it takes to be blessed by me and for your people to live long in the land that I have given to them. In this psalm, we see just how easy it is to have God's blessing. If you obey his commandments that God gave you to love him and to love your neighbor as yourself, you can be like the tree planted by streams of water that gives its fruit in its proper time, and its leaves don't wither, and all that he does prospers. It just seems like a carefree, prosperous life. You know what God wants from you. You learn to do it, and things go well. It really is that simple in this passage, because sin actually makes things really complicated. We can tell pretty easily in some of the most common parts of our lives. When you tell a lie, it might appear to make things simpler for a time, but so many times you have to keep track of that lie and make it make sense with all the other lies that you've told. So then you not only have to keep track of the truth, but also the lies that you've told to make sure that nobody finds out. The life of a righteous person is so much more simple. He has one truth to keep track of, one purpose to fulfill, and one God to worship. He's like a tree planted by streams of water. All he needs to ask is, where do I get my light? The sun. Where do I get my water? The stream. Nothing else really matters. On the other hand, the wicked have tons of truths to keep track of, many contradictory purposes, and thousands of gods to bribe. They're like the chaff that the wind blows away. They build their lives in a fragile way that falls apart right when adversity comes. The righteous ones are firmly rooted in place while the wicked blow away. They may appear prosperous for a time, but in the end, justice comes for the wicked. Nobody wants to live alongside the wicked, so they will have their time in court. The way of the wicked will perish, and there's nothing permanent about their successes. What is kind of surprising here is the reasoning that the psalm gives for why you should follow the law. The reasoning isn't because it's the right thing to do, or it'll make make it so that your conscience conscience is happy at night, or even because God wants you to do it. It's because it'll make your life go smoother. Your life is better if you are righteous and follow the law. It's within your selfish best interests to do what God wants you to do, because the life of the righteous is permanent and the life of the wicked passes away easily. In fact, that's a lot of what the books of wisdom in the Old Testament are about. They're not so much about morality as about how to live a life that goes smoothly. It just so happens to be the case that living a moral life tends to make your life go smoother. Now, it might be worth asking why this is the case. Why is it that the righteous tend to prosper and the wicked tend to get blown away like chaff? Why does it happen to be the case that living the righteous life happens to be the one that makes your life go most smoothly? In the last verse, we read this explanation. Because the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And this is a really profound statement in context. What he's saying isn't because God likes the kind of person that follows the law, and he'll make sure to take care of them, even though that's also true. What he's saying is that the Lord knows or has firsthand experience with the path of the righteous. God is on that path, so that's why you want to be on it. In fact, Proverbs 8 says that God created wisdom and the path of the righteous before anything else. This passage is beautiful, and the wisdom says, the Lord brought me about as the first of his works before the deeds of old. I was formed long ages ago at the very beginning when the world came to be. When there were no watery depths, I was given birth. When there were no springs overflowing with water, before the mountains were settled in place, before the hills, I I right wisdom was given birth. I was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep. Then I was constantly at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in the whole world and delighting in mankind." In other words, wisdom and moral law are at the very foundation of the world. It's not just something that people came up with on their own. It's not something that you can simply ignore because it's the most real thing in the world, even more than gravity. So ignoring God's call to do good and not evil and to be wise and not foolish is just as dangerous as ignoring gravity. It's more real than the pew that you're sitting on. And so you are just as liable to pain when you ignore God's wisdom as you are to stub your toe when you ignore the pew. Fighting against God's wisdom and righteousness and trying to destroy it because you don't like it is the same as trying to tear at the very fabric of reality itself. It's just not going to work, and there's going to be obvious consequences. Telling a lie is the same as trying to create an alternate reality that simply doesn't exist anywhere except in your head. Committing murder is waging violent war against the foundation of God's creation. It's no more wise to take a moral shortcut than it is wise to take a shortcut to get to Maryland by simply driving your car through the air over the Potomac by ignoring gravity. You might think that I'm being melodramatic, but look at your own experiences. You might think that you're being clever by telling a lie, but it always comes back to get you. You think stealing just this once might work out, but it never does. You could be even less subtle. Has there ever been a society where stealing and killing were widely accepted as okay? And the society actually survived? It doesn't matter what society you live in. If you are playing a game with someone and you cheat, you'll probably not get invited to play again. If you live a bloody life, you probably won't meet a peaceful end. These are universal truths that happen to be the case because God's wisdom and moral law are infused into every bit of creation, because God created the world with that wisdom. Now, you might think that God's perfect righteousness being at the heart of reality would be restrictive. But actually, it's the most beautiful thing there is. Because it tells us that the beauty and goodness that we experience in this world is beautiful objectively. It's not just in the eye of the beholder. When you see a waterfall and are in awe of its incredible power, you are right to consider it beautiful, because it tells you something about the God who made it. Your reaction to that beauty is the right reaction. It's not just a social construct or some random reaction, but a witness to the absolute reality of all creation. In fact, if you think that the waterfall is bad or ugly, unless you have a very good reason, that means that there's something defective in your own perception. When you see a mother or father making sacrifices for their kids and you begin to admire how great that is, you don't need to explain that away by saying, they're just fulfilling their social role as parents, or this is just my subjective preference for how a parent should be. No, those parents are bearing witness to God's own righteousness and beauty and the absolute reality of all creation that we were made to love others more than we were made to love ourselves. If you look at a father or mother that are happy with their children and, and that you hate that image, that means that you need to consider what's gone wrong with your perception. It's at the heart of wisdom to develop a love for what's lovely and true and proper and noble and beautiful because that's what it means to love the world as it was meant to be. And it's at the heart of wisdom to hate what's evil and sinful and corrupted because all of those things are just temporary and they'll be blown away in the wind. And those sinful, corrupted things will give way to that new world where those things no longer exist. But it's at the heart of folly to deny that there really is such a thing as beauty and truth, because it forces you to ignore the most foundational realities. Worse, it forces you to explain away all the purest and most innocent pleasures in life. You are going to war with the very fabric of reality. You can no more show something that is truly beautiful to be ugly then an insane person can blot out the sun by writing the word darkness on the pads of his cells. Unfortunately, a lot of what passes for being high class, knowledgeable, and educated these days often involves exactly this folly of explaining away your right and just pleasures in the face of beauty and truth. It involves asserting that all beauty and goodness are subjective and you can't really know what's good. That's why so much modern art is either nonsensical or intentionally ugly like a banana that's duct-taped to a wall. And yes, that's actually a modern art piece. And once you start denying these higher pleasures like love, self-giving, and the natural beauty of creation, and when you deny that they're good and you hate them, then all that you're left with is the most animalistic pleasures of sex and food. And there are so much greater pleasures in loving God's wisdom. Think about how much greater pleasure you can have in loving your child when you think, wow, this is a reflection of God's perfect love for me, I am happy to give up my interests and love for this child compared to, I was socially conditioned to feel certain bodily pleasures when picking up my child, but those pleasures aren't real, they're just my feelings. There are so much greater pleasures to be found in God's perfect wisdom. That's why wisdom says in Proverbs 8, now then, my children, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Listen to my instruction and be wise and do not disregard it. Blessed are those who listen to me watching daily at my doors and waiting at my doorway. For those who find me find life and receive favor from the Lord. But those who fail to find me harm themselves. All who hate me love death. And of course, those that fail to find wisdom harm themselves, because it's at the very foundation and heart of all reality. They love death because they hate reality. They hate the absolute reality that's at the core of all creation. But those who love wisdom find perfect life Because they live life as it was meant to be lived. In the Torah, God revealed his perfect wisdom to the world. He revealed the secret at the heart of all of reality and the most glorious truth that the beauty of creation is truly real. He taught us to love what's lovely and to hate what's evil, and that's at the very heart of reality. But I don't know about you, I find that really hard. We have a self-destructive impulse that's geared toward war with God's perfect wisdom that's at the heart of creation. And that means that our impulse is necessarily geared toward destroying the good world that God created. And as we've seen, trying to destroy or explain away everything that's good in God's good world is bound to make you miserable. Accessing God's wisdom, unfortunately, goes against the powerful, sinful nature which we have inherited. We have rebelled so totally that when God's perfect wisdom came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, we crucified and killed him. But God forgave all of our rebellions against his wisdom and against the reality of his creation by simply bearing the curse and consequences of our rebellion on the cross. And in Christ's resurrection, he infused us with the power of the new creation, born under the total power of God's perfect wisdom and undamaged by the evil and rebellion that creates suffering for this world. That way, we can really begin to love what's lovely and to hate what's evil and to live a life in accordance with God's creating wisdom. It happens to be the case that we get a glimpse of what that life looks like at exactly the point where it was inaugurated, where Christ gave up his life on the cross in love for the sake of the people who hated him. If you look at the cross just right, you see the complete ugliness of sin in the creation violently rejecting its creator. The world falls into chaos, rolls of thunder, earthquakes, veils torn, and stoffers laughing. The world seems to be unmade in the ugliness of the cross. But if you look at the cross from another angle, you also see the perfect beauty of God's wisdom, which was first revealed in the Torah, but is now so much more completely revealed in Christ who is God himself. Because there it is revealed that our purpose in this world is to imitate Christ on the cross, and giving ourselves up in love for God and for one another. It's in bearing the suffering of this world and not throwing it back in the world's face, but calmly demonstrating perfect love in response. And being transformed by a vision of the perfect beauty of God on the cross, it's no longer a burden to follow God's law, but our greatest pleasure, since we've been made to conform with the wisdom of God, which is at the very fabric of reality. Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty are joined apart no more. It's our highest pleasure and no less than duty's tall to love him beyond measure and serve him with our all. Let's pray. God, give us a vision of the beauty of your wisdom so we'd be inspired to love you and to love one another just as we will when your kingdom fully comes to this earth, amen.